We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Neely, who is Senior Medical Advisor, Technology for Orbis International, a global nonprofit transforming lives through the prevention and treatment of avoidable blindness, and he is also Professor of Ophthalmology at Indiana University. In his work with Orbis, Dr. Neely helps to direct the organization's award-winning telemedicine platform, CyberSight, and also teaches extensively in developing countries worldwide. Having practiced full-time pediatric ophthalmology and adult strabismus since 1998, he has been named a top doc by the Indianapolis Monthly on multiple occasions and received the American Academy of Ophthalmology Achievement Award in 2015 for his many achievements and contributions to the world of ophthalmology. Dan, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Ted, thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. Absolutely. I'm really interested to hear what you're going to have to tell our audience. So can you tell us a bit more about your background, your journey to a career in medicine, and how you chose ophthalmology as a specialty? Absolutely. I I think I'm kind of a prototypical physician. Uh, All of us seem to come from this background of loving science and biology and have this desire to uh, help people and find that to be rewarding. Uh, my father was actually an eye care provider. He was an op- he's, is a retired op- optometrist, but that wasn't really why I went into medicine. Um, as I went into medical school, though, and rotated through all the specialties, you, you fall in love with everything uh, that you're on, no matter what subspecialty is. But ultimately, for ophthalmology, it was the very rewarding nature of what ophthalmologists do with restoring vision. And you combine that with the fact that it's a very high-tech specialty, which is always evolving. And you're dealing with a combination of surgery and clinic patients. And these patients are just so grateful. It's hard not to fall in love with ophthalmology. Absolutely, Dan. And you have a really unique clinical practice. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yes, I guess you would describe it as a super subspecialist. Uh, Not only do uh, do I specialize in ophthalmology, uh, surgical and medical eye care, but then we further start to break these things down, and I am a pediatric ophthalmology specialist, and I specialize specifically in eye muscle disorders in, in both children and adults. So there's a little bit of adult overlap. Um, on top of the eye muscle component, uh, about half of what I do is things that would be unusual or unheard of to most people. These would be things like cataracts in infants, babies, and children, uh, glaucoma, high pressure in eyes in children, uh, eyelid surgeries, droopy eyelids in children, and even childhood eye tumors, which cause blindness or loss of death. Um, And on top of that, we even go into the newborn nurseries and screen premature babies because they develop a blinding condition called retinopathy of prematurity. So it's a bit of a a niche area, and uh, I find it to be very interesting and very rewarding. I can imagine that it's really rewarding by by dealing with children, you have the potential to really affect their growth and development and and really their entire lives. So it sounds like tremendous work that you're doing. 
Um, Dan, since 2003, you've worked with Orbis International as a volunteer faculty physician. I understand that Orbis International also operates the world's only flying eye hospital. Can you tell us a bit about this organization, the work they do, and this mobile teaching facility? Absolutely. I have absolutely fallen in love with Orbis. Uh, when I look back on my career, uh, becoming associated with Orbis, um, I would say, is been the greatest reward. Uh, and that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of as I um, look back at things that I consider to be part of my legacy. And I came into it um, as part of the legacy of my teacher. Uh, so Orbis started in the in the early 1980s. And at that time, Orbis was basically the flying eye hospital, which is just the coolest, greatest piece of technology you could ever imagine. Uh, we're now on the third generation, the third airplane, and the current flying eye hospital is an MD-10, which is basically what FedEx uses as a cargo freighter. The thing that's unique about the Orbis Flying Eye Hospital is that after FedEx donated the Flying Eye Hospital or donated the airframe, the plane, Orbis then transformed it into this mobile teaching surgical simulator platform. And uh, this is something that had never been done before, creating this uh, Flying Eye Hospital. Now, one thing right off the bat, everyone wants to know, do you do surgery while the plane is flying? No. Uh, the way this works, the plane flies into a location that has a need, that has infrastructure, and it remains um, on the runway in, uh, in in the host country. And then we bring in all the local physicians that are ophthalmologists. And the plane might be in this location for two to three weeks, typically. The local doctors will gather the patients that they have questions about or have difficulty with. We will examine those patients together in, in their hospital, and then we will select what we consider to be good teaching cases, because this is the thing that's unique about Orbis. It's not about going in and delivering care directly. Lots of people do that. Orbis is about sustainability. So we want to go in, do skills transfer, do teaching, um, help support the infrastructure if their equipment needs or organizational needs. And we want to be able to leave that location in better shape than when we got there and have them continue our mission with our support. So once we have examined these patients on our screening day, we then throughout the rest of the program week, we will do surgery and teaching throughout the week. Uh, the surgeries are usually assisted or performed by the local physicians along with our volunteer faculty. And as that week goes on, uh, there are a series of lectures that are presented to, to everyone. Um, on the plane surgeries, the, plane, the surgery is going on in the rear of the plane where the operating room is. In the front of the plane, we still have like the traditional seats and there's a very large video monitor and an interactive session takes place during the surgery. The, uh, the local physicians are sitting there and they're able to view the surgery and ask questions of the surgeon while he's operating. And not only that, but we now have 3D capabilities to where the audience is seeing things just as the operating surgeon does uh, with a 3D view through the microscope. Um, so this is, and there's usually a moderator uh, at the front classroom who facilitates these questions. We have translators as needed for the question sessions. And 
in between surgeries, we're doing teaching cases, we're giving uh, lectures just like you would in a traditional setting. And all of this activity on the airplane is additionally broadcast. So not only is this a surgical facility and a teaching facility, but it's a broadcast facility with an AV control room. And this is pushed out globally uh, to, uh, to users around the world. So we definitely have a global impact, even when we're working locally on the Flying Eye Hospital. On top of that, with this simulator uh, addition to Orbis' capabilities recently has been incredible. We have a, a location on the Flying Eye Hospital that supports various surgical simulators so that surgeons who aren't in the operating room with us, whether they're just our junior physicians or physicians in training, they can get experience as well with these simulators. And we have everything from cataract surgery to retinal surgery to using laser ophthalmoscopes. And it really is lending a new edge to what Orbis does as a platform with this flying eye hospital. Well, this is exactly why I wanted to have you on this podcast to tell us, tell our audience about this great work that you're doing. I'm a medical educator and, and this is music to my ears hearing how you're not just going in and doing the work, which would be tremendous on its own, but you're actually having this amplifier effect by teaching other people to do this work and creating, as you said, this long-term sustainability in the host countries where, where you're teaching and, and doing surgery at the same time. Dan, in addition to your clinical and surgical practice in Indiana, you do a lot of online work, including live video consultations with doctors around the world including a partner in Syria. Can you tell us more about this and particularly your work with CyberSight? All right. So CyberSight, uh, CyberSight was created by my mentor, Gene Helveston, uh, back in the 1980s, 1990s. So to give you some perspective, I was a fellow with him in 1997, 1998. At that time, that's the year that I got my first email account, and I wasn't even sure why I needed it. Someone just told me I needed an email, and I got one. So that's the, that's the landscape of technology at the time. But Gene Helveston had been to Cuba and had seen that there was all this donated equipment from Russia that was just sitting there rusting and being unused because no one knew how to use it, right? It was easy to give something, but then the sustainability component was non-existent. So he took it upon himself to start a remote mentoring program with these doctors in Cuba. And then that was picked up by Orbis and over the years morphed into what we have now. So it started from basically a, a 3.5 diskette camera and email exchanges. And now we have this platform with 20,000 users, and it, ba it reaches basically every country in the world. So he always liked to call this extended presence, and I think that's just a great term for what CyberSight does. Um, at this point, you, well, first of all, why is this so important? You know, we can't be everywhere. You can't take the plane everywhere. You can't send doctors into every local hospital and do this work. And the, the statistics are staggering here. At least 2 billion people, which is about a third of the world's population, have a vision impairment or actually have blindness even. So of those 2 billion people, about half, 1 billion, the condition can either be prevented or 
is yet to be even identified and addressed. So that's where we are right now. You have a billion people, and the experts are predicting that global blindness is going to triple by 2050. Well, we can't just get more planes and send more people. You have to find a, another multiplier, and digital is the way to do that. Uh, for very little capital investment, you can be everywhere in the world at the same time. Uh, and I give you an example of how the cybersite telemedicine, teleeducation platform has morphed from, from barely being an email program. Uh, just a, f- a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a, a webinar which was hosted by some physicians in, uh, in India and Ecuador. And these three ladies put on a, an eye muscle uh, webinar on something called Duane syndrome. And they had over 1,300 live attendees from well over 100 countries to this one global webinar. I mean, that's an incredible reach. Uh, so that's, that's become a big part of what Orbis CyberSight does. It also, um, that's kind of one side of the tele-education component of these webinars. The other side is more clinically oriented, which is uh, supporting physicians with patient care. Um, and this may not be what you traditionally think of as telemedicine. This is more telementoring, perhaps, where a local physician, whether he's in Cambodia or Uganda or India, may have a difficult problem, and he's able, he or she is able to um, upload some basic facts from that patient case. Um, perhaps supplement it with some images or photographs, and then submit them through our telemedicine platform. And then they then get triaged to a global expert. Literally, the people answering these consults for free are the leaders of ophthalmology around the world. We have over 400 faculty from 30 different countries, and they are the leaders of ophthalmology. So this physician in anywhere in the world is getting access to the highest level of medical opinion. And what I love about this is that these consults come in, the mentor will review what the local partner um, is seeing and proposing, and then they will teach by responding to that, asking questions, making suggestions, and the local physician is then able to carry out that plan, After the plan is affected with the patient, they then can continue to have a conversation. If whether things go great or whether things don't go well, they can deal with it and have this ongoing conversation. And for me, that that kind of back and forth exchange—that's where really the the strongest teaching takes place. And I think that's something that's just amazing. Science, science, science! Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Med Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.
Yeah, that's really great work. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what's currently going on in the world and ask you, how have you seen the intersection of healthcare and technology change with the COVID-19 pandemic that's going on, especially as it relates to your work with CyberSight? I think there's no question we have seen seen a change. Um, first of all, our usership has just gone through the roof with everyone being on lockdown and, and um, access to education and patient care limited, uh, our new registered users have just doubled exponentially. Uh, an example, February, kind of before things got too locked down, and uh, we would have 800, new 100 new registered u- users that month. In March, the new registrations had doubled for the month to 1,700. And then exponentially in April, it doubled again to where that month we had 3,600 new users. So all of a sudden, there was definitely a need and a desire to embrace technology, telemedicine, telehealth care, teleeducation, distance learning, whatever you want to call this. Uh, and that's, that's just an incredible uh, upsurge in activity. I think for me... Uh, it also has given us an interesting perspective. You know, historically, our telemedicine has been physician to physician discussion. We do some live surgical mentoring where we can tie in a physician in, say, the U.S. and someone in Peru, and they can uh, the U.S. physician can see the physician in Peru operating and they can have a live conversation. So we have done some live mentoring like that, but we don't typically do live patient interactions. And part of that is just the logistics of having people in multiple time zones. It's, it's hard to have someone halfway around the world doing a live interaction with a patient and or a physician sometimes. The, uh, the thing that I have seen that's interesting is that now all of us as physicians are doing virtual visits with patients and it's a totally different experience because you don't have someone collecting the information accurately. You have a very limited view of what the patient is looking like and showing you while you're talking to them. And I find that most of what these virtual visits that we're doing here in the U S and elsewhere, the vast benefit of what's going on is just the conversation. The physical findings are quite secondary, but that conversation between the physician and the patient, I think that's been a very interesting eye-opener for me and probably for a lot of people. Yes, it, it has been. We, we've seen this real tremendous shift and acceleration in telehealth as a result of the pandemic and, and just needing to continue on with clinical care. Um, can you tell us what are some of the unique strengths as well as challenges of doing video consultations as an ophthalmologist, even beyond what you've already mentioned? The, the challenge, so for an ophthalmologist to examine a patient, you walk into an ophthalmology clinic and exam room, and what do you see? You see a lot of equipment. You see microscopes, you see uh, visual acuity machines. Uh, You have all this specialized stuff. You rarely see an ophthalmologist sharing office space with anyone else other than another ophthalmologist because the demands are so specialty specific. There's no way you can do that remotely. In my practice, with a big part of what we do is check vision in children who need patching or 
uh, eye drop treatment for amblyopia or lazy eye, whatever you want to call that. And how do you do that in a four-year-old remotely with a parent who's not trained? So there definitely are some challenges. Now on the, and also a lot of what we do is checking eye alignments. Well, okay, you can get a rough idea of whether someone's eyes are straight on a, on a web chat, but it's really tough to tell. One of the most uh, rewarding things was, though, I, I did a consult with a, a patient who had seen multiple other subspecialists. She was being sent to see me to have her eyes straightened out. And um, we did a virtual visit in place of an office visit. And I see that she's got misaligned eyes and she's got this droopy eyelid. And I say to her, um, could you do me a favor? Could you put an ice pack on your eyelid for about 10 minutes and then take it off? and send me the pictures. And she did that. And this is called an ice test. And it's done specifically for a condition called myasthenia gravis. And myasthenia is a condition that affects the neurotransmitters where the signals go between the nerves and the muscles. So you have to have that neurotransmitter or the signal from the nerve doesn't get to the muscle. She did this test and sent me the picture and her droopy eyelid was completely gone. So that's what we call a positive ice test. And it, it's virtually diagnostic for myasthenia gravis. And the reason it had been missed in the past was hers was localized to the eyes only. And so some of the blood tests that were done to try and identify it just uh, were not helpful. And it's a great example of a lady that lived two hours away, had a five-minute conversation, and she went from being a frustrated person looking for an answer for six months to someone who now had a diagnosis and had a course of action. To me, that's probably the, been the most rewarding telemedicine consultation that I've seen so far. That's great. I, I understand that you've been helping to perform emergency eye surgeries during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is very important because we know that emergencies are continuing to happen in the midst of this viral pandemic, and we need to know how to manage them safely. So how are you approaching these emergency surgeries to manage your own safety as well as the safety of your patients? That's a great question, and I think it's an evolving answer. Um, locally, uh, with Indiana University Health, which is a very large healthcare organization, uh, our approach uh, with emergency surgeries is a little bit different than it is with the elective surgeries, which we are just now ramping back up. For emergency surgeries or people who cannot perform nasal swab, nasopharyngeal swab testing, children in my case, uh, we basically just assume that they are all COVID-19 positive. So when they go to surgery, the people in the room are the anesthesiologist and the nurse, and they both have on appropriate N95 and um, et cetera, protective gear. Once they do the intubation and have maybe stirred up uh, aerosol secretions that could be contagious, everyone has to be out of the room for 15 minutes to allow uh, the, the airflow of the, um, of the operating suite to turn over. After this kind of 15-minute timeout, the other team members who don't have as much extensive uh, personal protective gear, they come back in, we do the surgery, and then we leave. And then again, the anesthesiologist and his assisting nurse do the extubation. And then again, that room sits quiet for 15 minutes. So this is our new normal um, for emergencies and for children until we kind of get a better idea of what is the aerosol risk. 
There are also many people working on uh, little isolation chambers, if you will. They they look like clear plastic encasements that might be two by three feet in diameter and they have ports that you can work through. So these are ways to isolate the airflow around the patient's um, airways and, and head and neck. And these may become more mainstream as we uh, as we demo different models. For routine surgeries at this point, what we are doing is that everyone has to get a nasopharyngeal COVID swab done a few days in advance, and uh, that will tell us if they are positive or negative for infection. If they're negative, they can proceed with their their scheduled uh, elective surgery. Yeah, it's really interesting how this is uh, this pandemic's created a real change in workflows and processes that are necessary to keep both healthcare workers and other patients safe. How are you leveraging technology to help manage these emergencies in your own community, as well as the work that you do internationally? The greatest way that the technology is helping us leverage emergencies is to, is to do some triaging, um, whether it's directly with the patient or with uh, the physician re- located remotely. Because there is such a restriction on travel, either us directly with the patient or our partner physician through Orbis, they can be um, they can be seeing the patient and then have a discussion. And typically, you're able to appropriately triage and de- decide how important it is to have that person come in, uh, whether it's a local visit or traveling long distances. So Dan, I wanted to loop back around to the work that you're doing in Syria. Can can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, this this is a great story, I think. It's just another great example of how the digital platform CyberSite allows Orbis to work in areas of the world where we just couldn't be otherwise. Um, whether it's because of logistics or in this case civil uh, civil conflict. I'm currently working with a young physician just finishing his training in Syria, and he has a very limited access to teaching, and he obviously is unable to travel and attend um, seminars in other countries or receive fellowship teaching in other countries. So what we have done is we have established kind of a one-on-one mentorship. He's very interested in the, the subspecialty area that I am in. And so about once a month or once every two months, we will set up a little one-on-one Zoom webinar session with he and I, and and he'll collect a series of questions, whether they be on a patient or just on a topic. And we'll sit there and we'll have a little mentoring discussion about it. And then he'll have some follow-up questions frequently, and we may address that in the next webinar that we do together, or he may send them to me by email. Uh, But it's been a very rewarding chance to mentor a young physician who really has no one else to ask these questions of. And it's been even more rewarding that he has subsequently invited a small uh, number of his uh, cohorts there at at the university where he is, that we have now a small group session. And it's in these nice small settings like this where people are a little more relaxed and uh, willing to ask questions. And uh, it's just been tremendous. And this is one example, Syria, but we do this same kind of thing and uh, and serve the same need in, in many countries that they're just kind of off limits, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. So it's just a great example of the, the reach of this technology as a teaching tool. 
Wow. He and his patients are really lucky to have that access to mentorship and teaching, particularly, you know, without that technology, they wouldn't have access to that at all. Yeah, it's just really, really impressive. Great. Dan, I've been asking each of the guests on this podcast whether they would like to give a shout out to a small business or a restaurant in their local communities with the idea that these um, small businesses and, and the owners and all the people who work for them have really been suffering financially during this pandemic. Are, are there any in your community that you would like to give recognition to? Absolutely. My, I Likewise, my heart goes out to these small businesses and I see them struggling. One in particular is my uh, local Tex-Mex restaurant, El Camino Real, which is located in Fishers and Noblesville, Indiana. Um, I have known these people for 20 years, ever since I moved to the area, and the restaurant is just down the street from me. They, uh, they are like family, and I would definitely like to give a shout out to them because I have seen them struggle and adapt and evolve just like everyone else, and they are survivors, and I want to see them bounce back and be like it was. I think we all want to see that. That's great. We'll make sure that we uh, track down their social media information and get them included in our show notes so that anybody in your area that wants to give them a little bit of support can be encouraged to do so. Dr. Dan Neely, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the podcast and to tell our audience a bit about some of the great work that you're doing with Orbis International trying to help educate ophthalmologists around the world to try to help cure blindness and other eye disorders and all of the work that you're doing in the emergency setting as well during this pandemic to try to help um, keep addressing people's eye issues. So thank you very much on behalf of the podcast and our audience for being on the show. Thank you, Ted. It has definitely been a pleasure. Great. Have a great day and, and stay safe. Okay, Dan. Okay. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.